I wonder which you find more satisfying. Which do you find more satisfying? The underdog's victory or the bully's defeat and comeuppance? You know, there are lots of examples of this in pop culture. I'm going to draw from my own era. You, you could point to, uh, to the Karate Kid. You could point to Rocky or Wall Street or Hoosiers. Example after example in our popular entertainment of an underdog going up against an arrogant bully. You know, who we root for oftentimes depends on how the story is told. In, in, in Rocky, we're, we're very much rooting for the underdog. But let's face it, the karate kid was annoying. He was the kind of kid that I, you wanted to hit too. So the reality is, most of us were in fact rooting against the bully. And in that sense, I, I think the Karate Kid is truer to real life. Right? Heroes, that, 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 that underdog, uh, they are rarely uncomplicated. Only in Hollywood are they uncomplicated. Man, but the prideful bully, he is so easy to spot. And you just want him to go down. Whatever history eventually has to say about President Zelensky... And I'm sure it will be more complicated than it right now appears. There is no question that Putin will go down as one of the great historical villains of all time. And we are all rooting for his defeat. Why is that? Well, there's an innate sense of justice in all of us, isn't there? It's part of what it means that we were created in the image of God. But, but, but here's the thing. Our internal justice meter isn't always accurate. We, we, we get it wrong sometimes. And the place where it's most likely to be off? Your self-assessment. Oh, and that's a problem, right? Because actually that's where I need it most. That's where it matters most. Arrogance is, is obvious in others, but, but me? And I, I'm, I'm not arrogant. Am I? This winter, we've been considering the book of Esther. It is a book in which God is not mentioned even once. And yet it is a book in which he is clearly in control. And this morning we've come to the pivotal chapter in the book, the, the, the point in the story where everything changes. Things look bleak as we head into the chapter. But as you're going to see here in a moment, a question is asked three times. What should be done for a certain man by the king? What, 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 should, what should the king do for a certain man? What, what does that man deserve. As we explore the answer that the chapter is going to provide to that question, I want you to consider your own life. What is it this morning that you think you deserve? Turn with me, if you would, to Esther chapter six. 
Esther chapter six. Now, if you're using one of the black Bibles provided in the pews and the chairs around you, that's found on page 436, 436. We're in Esther chapter six today. I'm just going to start by reading the first three verses. Esther chapter six, verses one to three. That night, sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. All right, if you recall, we left off at the end of chapter five with a cliffhanger, right? Esther has set her plan to, to, to save her people from destruction. She set that plan in motion, but so had Haman. Haman had his grand plan, but now he set in motion kind of a, a sub plan, a sub routine that, that's, that's going to be accomplished before Esther can even really get her plan off the ground. But then chapter six opens and it just so happens that the king could not sleep. Well, there's nothing like government records to make you drowsy. <laughs> and so he asked them to be read to him. And it just so happens that the eunuchs turned to an account from five years ago of Mordecai saving the king's life. And that leads to the first time this question is asked. It's going to be asked three times in this chapter, but there in verse three, it's asked for the first time. What's been done? What's been done for him? What's been done for Mordecai? Now, as we're going to see, the eunuch's answer, nothing has been done. That answer is going to lead to a breathtaking conversation with Haman. A conversation that should make us think about our own lives twice. Uh, This is really the main thing that I want to press on us this morning. Not so much as a statement, an argument, but as a question. What should be done for you by the King of Kings? What should be done for you? Well, how do we answer that question? Here's how we're going to answer the question. We're going to consider first what pride assumes should be done. What pride assumes. That's point one. Let's pick up the story in verse four. The king asked, who is in the court? Now, Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him. Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered and the king asked him, what should be done for the man that the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse 
The king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. It should not surprise us that the king wants to reward, wants to wants to honor Mordecai. You know, it's one of the main ways that the despots maintain loyalty and control. It was true back then. It's true right now. We're seeing the same thing in action with the Russian oligarchs. They owe their wealth to Putin. So they're standing by him despite the injustice on display. Well, it was no different back then. It was no different with King Ahasuerush. So when he finds out nothing's been done for this important official, like immediately he wants to know who's around, who can help me rectify this oversight. And it just so happens that Haman has come to court early. Why has he come to court early? Well, we, we were told that back at the end of chapter five. We're, we look there in, in verse 14 of chapter five. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows constructed. Haman is there early to ask the king to execute Mordecai. The man that the king is intent on honoring. Well, Haman's brought in. And of course, before Haman can make his request, the king asks him a question. What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? There's in verse six. All right. This is the second time. The question has been asked and it now sets everything in motion. The king is not meaning to set a trap for Haman, but that's exactly what this is, right? For for whatever reason, the king does not name Mordecai. He he says it in this kind of third person. What what should be done for for the man? Uh, It just so happens the king forgot to name Mordecai. Right. Haman, in his pride, assumes, well, of course, the king's talking about me. You, you, you just feel the, um, the thing that I talked about in the devotional this week. Right. Haman is the classic teenager at this point. Haman just assumes he just understands that everything is about him. When I walk into the room, people are thinking about me. When I walk out of the room, people are talking about me. When they're laughing, they must be laughing at me. When they're when they're not laughing, uh, I I must have done something wrong. I mean, Haman is the classic self-preoccupied teenager at this moment. Of course, the king wants to honor me. And so the answer he gives is the answer to, to kind of the third time the, the, the question is asked, he, he gives it in the, in, in the form of a statement, but he, he asks himself the question, well, what should be done to honor me? Now, 
That understanding that, that he's like substituting himself in there and answering the question really helps us understand his answer. Because, of course, most people in King Ahasuerus's kingdom at this point, what they would really want if they were going to be honored is they'd want a promotion. Right. But here's the thing. Haman can't be promoted any higher. He's as high as it gets. All right. So he's not going to ask for promotion. Maybe people would want like wealth. But we've already seen Haman is wealthier than the king. The king can't help him out much there. So what does he want? He tells us what he wants there in verses 8 and 9. Oh, if you want to honor a man, king, this is what you should do. You should have him wear your clothes and ride your horse and be paraded in front of everyone with with one of your highest officials saying, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Declare the king's personal honor to everyone. You, you, you see what, what Haman is doing there. What Haman is asking for is, oh, you want to honor me? Make me king for an hour. Make, make it seem to everybody else like I am the king. Well, what's going on there? I, I, we've, been, we've been led up to this point by, by the narrative. Haman's pride is galled by the one thing he lacks. The one thing that all of his money cannot buy. The, the one thing that his power cannot get for him. Haman lacks the public honor, the public respect that belongs to the king himself. I mean, we're not, we're not surprised, right? This, this is the guy who needed the king to actually issue a direct order that everyone should bow to him when he walked through the city gate. This, this is the guy we were told there at the end of chapter five who cannot be happy so long as one person is failing to give him the respect that he feels that he deserves. You know, it's the nature of pride to assume that it deserves what it already has and to feel like wounded and aggrieved. Because it doesn't have the things that it wants, but believes it deserves. Now, none of us, none of us want to think of ourselves as prideful. But is there anyone in this room who doesn't deal with pride? You know, pride can show itself in lots of different ways in our lives. We're, we're, we're pretty good at spotting arrogance. That attitude that says, I deserve this. That attitude that says, I'm better than those other people. That that attitude that says, I'm worthy of what I've gotten. We're pretty good at spotting it. And so we're pretty good at avoiding just out and out arrogance in our lives most of the time. But pride shows itself in more subtle ways, doesn't it? It shows up in envy. And certain kinds of discontent. Because some people have what I want, but I don't have. It might be material things, but it might be other things, right? Some people have 
the kinds of friends that I wish I had, but I don't have. Some people have the kind of respect that I wish I had, but I don't have. And envy and discontent begins to build. You know, pride is often hiding in low self-esteem. We think, we think of people who struggle with self-esteem as being people who are not prideful at all, but, but actually, often that's exactly what it is. It's pride, but sort of like the photographic negative. Pride in reverse that's at work there. Pride is often at work in our lives when we find ourselves rejecting or, or flouting legitimate authority. You see, pride considers itself above the law, especially when those laws are minor or inconvenient or just rub me the wrong way. It's pride that's irritated at inconvenience. Remember the last time you were inconvenienced by someone or by something and your reaction to it? It felt so legitimate To be irritated. But it was pride at work there. It's it's pride that insists on its own rights. But struggles to accommodate the rights of others. Can you find yourself anywhere in there that I just listed out? I know I can You know, at the root of it all, pride assumes that the world revolves around me, or at least it should. Pride places itself at the center of every interaction, every conversation, every relationship. And this is why it is so hard to spot in ourselves, but so very easy to see in everybody else. You know, we come by it honestly, this pride, this pride that we know we have, but we are so ashamed of when we see it. We come by it honestly because pride is at the very heart of humanity's rebellion against God, what we call sin. You know, at the very beginning, Adam and Eve really were people who had everything because they lacked nothing, right? They, they, had, they had abundance. They had each other. There was nothing wrong with the world. And most importantly, they had God. They were in perfect relationship with the God who made them and who loved them. But they lost sight of that. As one preacher I heard recently said, as it turns out, it's hard to see God when you want to be God. I can't think of a truer statement. It's hard to see God when you want to be God because you're mainly just looking at yourself. All Adam and Eve could see was the one thing in their world that demonstrated they were not God. The one limit that God's word had placed on their lives. The fruit of that one tree that they were not to eat from. And so they had to have it, right? And, and then they took it. 
And, and now finally we'll have what we always wanted. We'll be like God. And in the rebellion, they lost everything. They lost the abundance of the garden. They lost the presence of God. They lost life itself. Pride had blinded them. And friends, pride continues to blind us. Because in our pride, we have not reckoned with God. We have not understood ourselves. How can you go about discovering the pride that lurks in your life? The the pride that, that tries to hide and cover itself that is really there and wreaking havoc. I, I, I want to suggest, and I'll probably come back this, to this again later, how, how important it is to have people that can speak into your life. When I was, when I was in university, um, toward, towards the end of my time there, I had this group of really close friends, these five other guys who were my best friends in the world, and they had permission to speak into my life, and one day they did, and I regretted giving them that permission. Uh, because it was painful. They, they basically came to me as my senior year and they said, Michael, are you aware of how arrogant you come across to everybody? I'm like, what, me? I'm not arrogant. What do you mean? And they said, look, the way you talk, you talk as if like, you know, everything. And I said, well, I, no, I don't. Um, and they said, yes, you do. And we'll give you examples. And they said, like, when, whenever you're in a discussion with somebody and, and, uh, and, and they disagree with you and you disagree with them and you're kind of talking it out, you just, like, declare, well, this is just the way it is. You, you don't do what everybody else does. You know, because when other people offer their opinions, they'll, they'll signal to everybody listening that they understand that what they're offering is their opinion. They'll say things like, well, well I, I kind of think, or it's my opinion that... Or, as I've thought about it, this is, this is what I think. No, you just say, and this is the way it is. And I think, well, of course I think it's my opinion. Why else would I be saying it? I'm not saying somebody else's opinion. Why do I need to tell you that I know that it's my opinion? Because if you don't tell us, we think you're an arrogant jerk. That's why. <laughs> this kind of conversation actually went on for months. And some of you wish it had gone on longer. <laughs> But very slowly, I began to see, oh, yeah, I'm coming across as arrogant. And maybe I am. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't put myself above the normal conventions of language that allow us to communicate with one another in a way that lets people know, I may be an arrogant jerk, but I'm not meaning to be an arrogant jerk right now. Do you have people in your life that can help you see what you cannot? And once they've pointed it out, can you hear them? Are you willing to listen to them and to keep listening to them until you see the pride that hides so well and is so easily justified? In our pride... We have not reckoned with God. We have not rightly seen ourselves. 
Pride assumes that it deserves honor. But having made the wrong assumption, second, let's consider what pride discovers as it tries to answer this question. What should be done for you by the king of kings? Let's pick up the story in verse 10. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai, the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him. This is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. All right. So there at the end of verse nine, Haman confidently finishes his answer with this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. That's. The first time that is said, it's the first time the three questions are answered. And the king loves his advice. And the king's like, Haman, you are brilliant. You are brilliant, pure genius. That's why you're my prime minister. So here, hurry and do exactly what you proposed for Mordecai, the Jew. Get my best garment, grab my favorite horse, clothe him personally. Haman, don't spare any effort. Don't leave out a single detail that you've suggested. You see that there in verse 10. Haman, you are a genius. I mean, you can see the look on the king's face, can't you, at this point? He has no idea about Haman's hatred for Mordecai. Mordecai hasn't told him. He has no idea the enormity of what he's telling Haman to do. And he's just thrilled that he's got such a great advisor in a guy like Haman. And so, of course, it's not hard to imagine at this point what's going on in Haman's face as he struggles to control it because he cannot express displeasure. He cannot have a downcast face in front of the king. He certainly cannot express his anger to the king. That's a good way to get your head chopped off back then. So he's, he's, he's struggling to control his face, but you know inside he wants to scream or, or cry or, or both. Whoever said the Bible doesn't have a sense of humor? This is one of the great comic scenes in the entire scriptures. So Haman does what he's told. So, so Haman answers the question the first time. This is what should be done. Then the answer is given the second time. The king says, right, go do that. And now it's answered a third time. Mordecai is dressed, mounted, led through the city square with Haman announcing to everyone this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. But you know what's going on in his head. All, every time he says that is, this is what is done for the man 
who refused to bow before me and give me the honor I deserved. When it's over, Mordecai returns to the office. That's, that's his, his, his office is at the king's gate. Mordecai returns to the office. And you've got to assume, I mean, this guy's bewildered. Like, what just happened to me? But the focus isn't on Mordecai. The focus is on Haman. Haman is devastated. He rushes home. His face is covered. He's in, he's in mourning. When he tells his wife and friends what's happened, they draw the conclusion for him there in verse 13. And it's exactly the opposite of what they said back in chapter 5. Right? In chapter 5, they say, go build a gallows. Ask the king to hang Mordecai on it and then go enjoy yourself. But now they say, you have set yourself against Mordecai. You have set yourself against the Jews. But you have begun to fall before him. And now your downfall is certain. Why are they so sure? Why this, this reversal? Well, we're not told. Lots of reasons, perhaps. Uh, they could be quite superstitious. So they could just assume this is like some sort of karma or fate working out. It, it, it may be that in the kind of the pagan worldview that relations between people on earth was reflected in relations between the gods in heaven. So, you, you know, Haman has kind of declared war against the Jews. And, and maybe they just assume, right, there's a battle going on in heaven between Mordecai's God and, and, and the Jews God. And clearly the Jews God is winning. We're, we're, we're not told. We don't know. But even without saying it explicitly, it's clear what the author of Esther thinks. Prideful Haman has discovered that God resists the proud. But no one resists God. Was it just a coincidence that the king couldn't sleep? That very night? Was it just a coincidence that the eunuchs read the account of Mordecai saving the king's life? Why didn't they just open up to yesterday's account? Why go all the way back to five years ago? Was it just a coincidence that the king failed to mention that it was Mordecai he wanted to honor? Was it just a coincidence? That Haman was the only one in court that morning? Not even once was it just a coincidence. You see, Mordecai has been giving his advice throughout the book to, to Esther. Esther has been laying her plans. Haman has been plotting and planning to... But at the turning point of the entire book, with the fate of Mordecai and the Jews hanging in the balance, it is not Mordecai's wisdom or Esther's bravery that reverses the trajectory of the whole story. It is God. It is the God who gives sleep to those he loves, but who also denies it when he wants to. It's the God who directs the steps of men and the opening of a book to just the right page. It's the God who uses 
the pride of the enemy of his people to humiliate that same enemy, to mock him before he brings him low. You know, the crazy thing about pride is how blind it is to its own ridiculousness. How, how, how worthy it is of being mocked. And the, the Bible is unsparing in pointing this out. Just to draw on some stories, you know, Pharaoh says to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Only to find out what true authority can do. As God lays waste to his nation and then to his own family. And Pharaoh is reduced to begging Israel to leave. Job. Job demands answers from God. He wants an accounting from God for what's happened in his life. And God's reply in Job 38. um, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where, Where were you when I put all the stars in the sky? Yeah, that's what I thought. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4 exalts his own power and majesty only to be reduced to living like an animal in the open field eating grass until he acknowledges that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and is able to humble those who walk in pride. In the New Testament, Herod accepts praise from the crowd who's telling them that he's a god. He's like, yeah, that sounds good. Only to have the real God, the only God, strike him down so that he was eaten by worms and then died. Yeah, some God. Friends, Proverbs 16 declares, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And James, writing in the New Testament, quoting Proverbs, explains why. In chapter 4, verse 6, God resists the proud. Why does God resist the proud? Well, because the proud... The proud want to be God, right? Pride pride is the attitude of someone who is utterly ungrateful because he assumes everything he has, he gave himself, failing to recognize that everything he has was given to him, starting with the breath you breathe. Pride is the attitude of someone who wishes that God were dead because he's getting in the way of what I deserve. But what pride discovers is that what it deserves is shame. And that's what it gets. Adam and Eve were left with nothing but their pride. They, they did not become as God when they rebelled against them, against him. At the end of chapter two, we're told we read about this in the, in the wedding yesterday. At the end of chapter two, before the rebellion enters in, they are naked and felt no shame. But but after they rebel, what, what do they do? They go hide because they knew they were naked. 
They felt their shame. They felt that intense awareness that they were not worthy of what they had aspired to. So it is here. All Haman has left, really, at this point, is his pride. And that pride is producing nothing but shame. An intense awareness that in his pride he has been made to look what he really is. And that's a fool. Friends, what should be done for you by the King of Kings? By the God who alone is worthy of all honor and glory and majesty. What should be done for you? Maybe in your pride, you've assumed that he would vindicate you. Maybe in your pride, you thought he would look at your life and he would say, yeah, on balance. Better than not. Better than most. The truth of the matter is that because of your pride. You deserve only God's mocking and scorn. This is how bad our pride is. And we won't understand it until we've looked at our pride in light of who God is. But here's the thing. James doesn't stop and simply say God opposes the proud. He goes on. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's hard to think about our pride. It's hard to think about the shame that our pride brings us. Which is why we need the good news of the gospel. The good news that is in James's words. In your pride, you are headed for a reversal Every bit as dramatic as Haman's. But in his love, God took on flesh. He he lived a, a perfect life, a truly humble life in the person of Jesus Christ. And then in the person of Christ, he suffered his own reversal. This is how Paul describes it in Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five. Where he tells us to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even To death on a cross. Friends, Jesus did not deserve to die. He deserved to be held up, honored, and worshiped. But Jesus Christ willingly died in our place. He went about the reversal that we all deserve to have. And He did it so that we who deserve death. Might not die if we humble ourselves. 
and put our faith in him. You say, Michael, that's a big claim. How, how, how do I know? How do I know that his death was for me? How do, I, how do I know that it was effective? Well, the answer is because God didn't leave him in the grave. Paul goes on there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, and says, For this reason, for the reason that Christ humbled himself to death for sinners, we're told, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the book of Esther, like the gospel itself, is about God's commitment to this great reversal in order to save his people. But make no mistake, you and I, all of us, must undergo such a reversal one way or another. If we will humble ourselves now, God promises that he will raise us up on the last day. This is where James in chapter four ends his his reflection on pride that those who humble themselves, the Lord will exalt James 410. Friends, if you remain in your pride, if you remain in your rebellion, God will bring you low. Maybe not in this life, but without doubt on the last day. God not only opposes the proud, he rightly mocks them. For our pride is an offense to God. But it's even worse than that. Because our pride keeps us from turning to God. And then ironically, it gets even worse than that. Because our pride then becomes exhibit A in our condemnation before God. Our pride gets us nothing. Haman trips all over his own pride all the way to his downfall. Will you? You don't have to. The the chapter ends, Esther 6 ends, with Haman being rushed to the banquet to appear before the king and the queen. We'll get to that next week. It's the great moment of dramatic tension. We haven't even gotten there, but we know it's not going to end well. But here's what I want you to be left with as we kind of await yet another cliffhanger. We are all rushing toward that day when we too will appear before the king. We don't know when that day is going to come. But it is coming. On that day, what should be done for you by the King of Kings? Friend, consider what he's already done for you in Jesus Christ. For the humble, that will surely be enough. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and consider those ways in which maybe pride is at work in your life, keeping you from coming to the Lord. 
or the ways pride is at work in your life, keeping you from, from the, the, the relationships and the life that God would have for you even now. Just confess that to him. Heavenly Father, we confess that like our parents before us and their parents before them, all the way back to the beginning, in our pride, we are rushing headlong to our own destruction. Our plea is that you would reverse the trajectory of our lives. Our plea is that you would give us eyes to see our pride and to hate it. And that instead, you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us a humble and trusting faith that we might stop trying to be God and instead see God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.